Hello everyone. Welcome to our Saturday Dhamma session. We gather together again to spend an hour practicing, studying the Dhamma together. Practicing first. Our study has to be in conjunction with practice or it has no true benefit. So rather than have a, a video where you watch, watch me talk, we've closed down video and instead we're focusing on our own practice, focusing inward. So take this time to close your eyes and Refocus your attention on experience and try to cultivate positive qualities of mind. That's probably the best way to describe meditation, the development of positive qualities of mind. It's important to understand about the word meditation that it's really too vague to give any sufficient description of of, a, of an activity meaning there are many different things that could be called meditation and simply saying you're practicing meditation or hearing that someone practices or teaches or studies meditation doesn't say a, doesn't say enough doesn't tell the whole picture More broadly, meditation is the focus on the mind, the mental focus. So when you have murder, there is premeditated murder where someone focused their attention on it beforehand. If you didn't focus your attention and you kill someone in the heat of the moment, it's not called premeditated. Meditation is the focusing in the mind, focusing of the mind. And when we talk about meditation, we generally mean some practice of focusing the mind. So there's an element of repetition involved. But even with that very broad and general definition, there's there's an allowance for unwholesome qualities. You could imagine a type of meditation where you try to cast a curse on someone. Maybe that's even possible. Maybe there's powers in the mind that allow you to curse someone or put a spell on them or something. We have a story about someone who, with their mind, they got so angry and they had such a strong mind that they were able to burn an entire village down with their mind. True or not, I don't know. So in Buddhism, 
or we specify that what we're talking about is wholesome qualities of mind. We're cultivating our mind, focusing our mind on the development, sustained development of wholesome qualities. A very basic principle in Buddhism is doing good deeds, cultivating goodness. But cultivating goodness in Buddhism isn't about the deeds themselves. It isn't particularly about being charitable or even ethical. It's about cultivating the qualities of mind that are related to ethics and related to charity and kindness and generosity because that's what comes behind all of those acts. A person who, who has no opportunity to kill or steal or lie or cheat can be said to be very ethical, but it's only when the mind is tested and when the mind is restrained in the face of temptation, in the face of prov provocation, when the mind stays at rest, when the mind stays at peace. That's where true ethics and true kindness, true goodness comes from. So the purification of the mind, the practice through the practice of what we would call meditation is, is essential for goodness, it's essential for happiness, it's essential for peace and freedom from suffering. And so to that end, we practice what the Buddha called samatha, samatha and vipassana, samatancha vipassana cha. He said, these are the two things that are of great benefit to the mind. Two things that were essential in the cultivation of wholesome qualities of mind and goodness in general. And these two qualities of mind or these two concepts, these two, two realities, they comprise uh, what we might call the the scope of Buddhist meditation. In fact, all Buddhist meditation is required to some extent, to have these two qualities. And so I talk, want to talk about them today because there's confusion on many fronts regarding these two ideas, these two words, and, and more generally regarding Buddhist meditation and because 
the Buddha talked about meditation in many different ways, it's hard sometimes to figure out where it all fits into the framework, into the scope. So sit back, close your eyes. I'll be talking for a bit, and then hopefully not af after not too long, we'll take questions. In the meantime, if you want to post a question in the chat, you can help the help our staff out by posting your questions in advance so they can categorize them. We're focusing on questions that need a reply that are urgent, that are something the, the, the person asking really needs help with. So if you're afraid your question might not get answered, you can sort of gauge the priority. If you need an answer, if it's something personal about your practice, you most likely will get a reply. Don't be afraid to post it. If it's something you're curious about or some theoretical topic, less likely. Don't be discouraged if we don't answer it because that's sort of where we're where we're drawing the the criteria. So samatha and vipassana. First, let's understand them. They understand that they can be described, be talked about in different two different ways. First of all, as qualities of mind. And second of all, as types of meditation. And you have to separate those two if you want to get a clear understanding of what these words mean, because you'll hear about them described, or you'll hear about these words used interchangeably as types of meditation and as qualities of mind. Why that is, is because there are two different types of meditation and, and why they are different relates, to some extent, to the presence or absence of these two qualities. So let's make that clear. There is the quality of mind called samatha, tranquility, and there's the quality of mind called vipassana, seeing clearly. And then there is the med type of meditation called samatha kamatana, tranquility meditation. And there's the type of meditation called vipassana kamatana, a meditation for seeing clearly. We don't have a good word. I'm avoiding the word insight that's normally used because it isn't a, I don't think, a very good translation. Seeing clearly, clear seeing. Clarity, if you want one word. These are the names of those two meditations. Now, tranquility means the stabilizing of the mind, the focusing of the mind, the quieting of the mind, concentrating of the mind. It's just a general quality of mind. It's something that is uh, admirable, coveted by most meditators. It's often the reason why people get into meditation it's rare to find someone who hasn't heard of it who is seeking out clarity of vision. More often we find people are interested in seeking out tranquility, just want peace. And that's fine, that's admirable. Problem is that, of course, without seeing clearly, our peace will never be complete, will never be sustainable. It will always be subject to and, and vulnerable to uh, change 
and disruption due to ignorance and delusion and reactivity and so on. And so we practice to cultivate tranquility. We also practice to cultivate insight, seeing clearly. But it happens that in our practice, there are some practices that do not have the power to bring about clarity of vision, to bring about seeing clearly. Seeing clearly means to experience things as they are. It means to some extent to, to remove the mind, remove from the mind the dust and the, the defilement or, or less metaphorically the confusion and the perversion in the mind. And by perversion, it just means the misapprehension or misunderstanding that leads us to get angry, it leads us to cling to things that can't make us happy and so on. So seeing clearly is a straightening of the mind and it's a simplifying of the mind. It has, it has much to do with tranquility. It brings about tranquility, it requires tranquility. And so these two qualities of mind, both are important. But there are some types of meditation that cannot allow you or cannot provide you with clarity of vision. Not because as practices they are lacking in the sense that the qualities of mind are very strong and very uh, supportive of clarity of vision they're lacking one thing and one thing only we call them samatha kamatana because they lack the potential to bring about clarity of vision. So they, they lack the potential of allowing it, to allow one to see clearly for the one simple reason that their focus is on the wrong, wrong type of object or is on the type of object that is incapable of bringing about clarity of vision because the object isn't real. So be, we, to be clear, to, to recap really, we have the two qualities of mind, samatha and vipassana, tranquility and seeing clearly. Now when we talk about meditation, we have this first type of meditation that only brings about the one quality. It has great potential and, and, and all the faculties are perfect. It's like you have perfect soil for understanding, but there's no seed because because you didn't plant the seed or and there's no seed involved there's there's no kernel of reality there 
many, many types of meditation are like this. this. You might say most types of meditation in the world, most religious practices that involve meditation are of this sort. They involve the creation of an object in the mind and the sustained, repetitive, and, and intense focus on that object, all of which is, is positive and beneficial. But because the object is a concept, There is no relation to ordinary experience. There's no relation to the reality of our interactions with the world around us. So to, to give an example, the, the example that's given in the, the ancient texts is focusing on the concept of earth. Think of earth as a concept, not, not um, dirt per se, or clay or something. But if you take a, 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 a ball of clay or, or a disc they would use, a disc of clay, and you get the essence of earthness from it, the, the solidity, the, 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 the compactness, the hardness of it. And you take that as an idea in your mind. And they, they're, they're the four elements, right? So earth, air, water, fire. If you take a candle flame and you get the idea of fire, and it's not about the fire that you see, even though that will be the beginning point, or it's not about the earth. It's about getting this concept in your mind. And you do this as with many meditations, you use a mantra to repeat, to focus the mind. This is the cultivation of positive qualities. Earth, earth, patavi, patavi, they would say. You can do the same thing with a color. You take the color white. And you just say to yourself, white, white, white. Colors are also concepts. We name it white as a description of the object, and we create this in our mind. We conceive of white until the whiteness becomes our reality. We, we, we do this so often, so, so repeatedly, and we're so intent upon it that it becomes our whole universe. It's, it's all we experience. And we enter into what are called a, the jhanas, or, or one description of, of what we mean by the word jhana, or, or absorption, or meditation. You enter into a real meditative state. And you can get such incredible peace and calm and focus, clarity. Your mind is perfectly clear, but, but you, you, we don't call it seeing clearly. You can't see clearly about your problems, about the problems of the things you cling to, because you're not, you're not there. You're not engaged with sensuality. You're not engaged with things like food or music or sex or... A conflict, 
animosity, all those things, you've just put them aside. You've transcended them. All, this, all you're thinking about is white, white, white. And that's, you repeat to yourself, white, white, earth, earth, fire, fire. That's so powerful. It's a very positive and wholesome state. But it has no potential to, call, to, to bring about clear seeing. In and of itself, it, it is incapable of it. You can control it. You can create this totality of whiteness, totality of earth, totality of fire, and you can expand it into infinity. And we were talking about this morning some of the higher attainments that based on that and based on the depth that eventually become so focused that you're not even, uh, there's not even any joy. It's just complete peace. There's not even any thought about it. You stop saying white, white. And you're just perfectly aware of the white. And when it gets so refined, then you can even discard the whiteness. And you just have a sense of the infinity. And you have a sense of infinite space. You, you just feel an infinite spaciousness as though your mind is encompassing the whole universe. You can go beyond that. You let go of the space and you're just aware of your consciousness that is infinite, the consciousness that perceives of the space. And you're aware of infinite consciousness. And then you let go of even infinite consciousness. And because that is so refined, there's nothing left. And you're just aware of nothingness. And then you can even let go of the nothingness and you get to a state that's called neither perception nor non-perception. It's just so subtle. It's hard even to say that it's there. It's just complete. It's almost cessation. But it's nothing to do with cessation of suffering. Nothing directly anyway. These are the powerful states of tranquility meditation. But we call them tranquility meditation because they don't have the power to cultivate clear seeing. They don't have any relation to reality. They're mental constructs, mental creations. Then you can develop magical powers based on these. Clairvoyance, clairaudience. You can remember your past lives. You can apparently see into the future. Lots of interesting and exciting things and very enticing. But when you stop, when you stop, you find that you've gained no lasting, no no profound, no life-changing insight or wisdom. There's a story of a monk who was very, very experienced in these, and he had he could even fly through the air. They say, and he he was so famous. He was he was looked after by the king. This king was so. impressed by this ascetic that he cared for this monk in his let the monk live in his royal park and he would bring him food himself every day but one one once one time he had to the king had to leave and so he asked his queen to care for the this ascetic 
And so the ascetic flew into the palace on that day, landed in the king's uh, bedroom or, or in the king's residence. And when he landed, the queen was had been resting on her bed and she was startled by his presence and she stood up and her robe slipped off and she was naked for a moment or partially naked. And this ascetic who was such a powerful, powerful meditator, his mind grasped on to the perception of her beauty and became completely and utterly infatuated and lost his all of his focus and concentration, lost his ability to fly and received the food from her and then just walked out the door because he couldn't fly anymore. And he completely lost everything. And now the story goes that the king set him straight. And the queen said, actually, the queen set him straight in the end. But he had gained no lasting, no profound, no life-changing wisdom. So there is another type of meditation, and we would say that it's a special type of meditation. It's important to understand this, this specialness of it. It's not ordinary. It sounds sometimes very ordinary, but it requires the rejection of concepts in general. And so it actually puts one quite at the mercy of suffering, of, of, of stress, of change and, and chaos. And it demands more of the meditator, demands that the meditator uh, focus amongst the chaos. It demands that the meditator become flexible, demands that the meditator become impartial rather than trying to avoid or, or transcend our problems. We try to perceive them differently. And so our whole practice is about this change in perception. This is where we, we talk about mindfulness. Mindfulness is a quality that's actually technically present in all, in all types of wholesome meditation, samatha or vipassana. But when we talk about mindfulness, we generally mean mindfulness of reality, mindfulness of experience. And because the focus is experience, we're able to see and understand our suffering, our reactions to suffering, our happiness and our reactions to happiness. We're able to see cause and effect. What are the consequences of our reactions, a consequence of our habits? What are our habits? Are they wholesome? Are they unwholesome? Good for us? Bad for us? And there's a whole slew of vision that comes, clarity of vision, seeing things more clearly than before. It might not feel as peaceful or as calm, depending on how much tranquility we have. But the focus is in a different place. The focus is on seeing and understanding things as they are. So when we focus on physical sensations, you can never gain that sort of strength of 
focus that you get from samatha meditation because it's always changing. When you watch the stomach rising and falling, it's never going to make you perfectly entranced. The only way that can happen is if after some practice and when after intense practice you're able to dwell in this state of flexible flexible objectivity where, where your peace of mind is independent of the object. You're not phased by change or chaos as the stomach will not be constant as as with any physical object when we focus on pain or pleasure these are these two change when we focus on our thoughts our thoughts are fleeting And so this we call vipassana kamadhana. Not because there's no samatha, but because the object allows for seeing clearly. That's why we practice what we practice. And that's how it should be understood. So that's the Dhamma for today. Just a short lesson on the difference between samatha and vipassana. Without further ado, we have... Chris and Ulu and Jim standing by to help ask and present the questions. So if you have questions, now is the time. Post them in the chat. Everything else will be removed from the chat. I'm going to pin this message. I'm ready when you are. Okay, let's begin. I understand that when it feels like we're forcing the breath, we're not. There's just tension, maybe disliking too. Should we just note this as such then? Is noting forcing of breath incorrect? I think it is, yes. I mean, there's very little in of that sort that's going to be incorrect. It's just a little bit inaccurate and it has the potential to lead to some incorrect mind states. Because if you if you think of it as forcing, then you're in the state of mind that thinks that you're actually doing something. And all that you're doing is stressing about it. There's just craving and that leads to a tense state. So yes, you've got it right. When it feels like you're forcing the breath, it's just tension. There's, there's usually not just disliking, but it's going to start with some wanting. You desire for it to be a certain way, or you're worried about it, fussing about it. And you should note all that. I am really having a problem in doing meditation daily. How do I create a habit of daily meditation? Well, the best way would be to cultivate a foundation practice, do, do intensive practice. That's, a, that's the best way to support your, your daily, daily routine. 
So if you can find a way to go to a center and do a retreat where you retreat physically from society and mentally face your the chaos of your mind head on intensively for some time, that, that's really the best way to give you a sort of a foundation that's going to set your mind in the right direction, allow you to easily practice, cultivate a daily practice. It will change a lot about your life, most likely. It will direct you to simplify your life and so on. But without that, barring that, a good sort of halfway solution would be to, well, do our at-home course. We have an at-home course where you can practice similarly to an intensive course, but but through our well, we have a set a sign-up system and we meet once a day and you, you do a daily practice. And why that helps is because you have someone guiding you, you have someone directing you, someone pushing you to do daily practice in order to continue the course. And because of that, it, it gives you the incentive you need to develop that positive habit of having a daily practice. So I'd recommend if you're interested, you can sign up for our, our at-home course. It's all free. We're not making money off this. And uh, that should help. But ultimately, ultimately, difficulty is a part of reality. It's, it's a reality of meditation practice. In general, you should never be concerned or discouraged when things are difficult. If you have difficulty having a daily practice, consider that you're 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 doing good work you're working at it and and keep directing your mind in that way of trying to cultivate a daily practice don't ever be discouraged that you're not able that you're failing because success it only comes about in 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 it comes about after failure right you only fail until you succeed and so all success is going to look like failure, 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 success. Don't be discouraged when you fail. Just understand that you haven't reached the goal yet. You haven't reached success, success yet. Sometimes it feels like my notings are not registering, or like they are losing strength. Should I note weak, weak? Should I think of more precise notings? No, generally speaking, don't ever be concerned with the quality of your noting, because that has much more to do with the state of mind, the quality of mind. And that's something that's not directly under your control. The, the practice of noting is going to evoke it's going to, to uh, incite the mind. It's going to direct the mind. And those qualities will just develop through that. But they take time. And they're going to be um, they're going to be obstructed by other bad habits that you're not developing, but that you have developed in the past. And they're going to just come interrupt your practice. And there's not much you can do about that, just to be patient and note them as well. 
and to continue to cultivate this new habit of clarity of mind. But but throughout there will be many times where it feels like absolutely it's weak, it feels like you're not catching things. Sometimes that's just the perception of it. Sometimes that's actually a positive experience. That description that you're giving quite often and might very well likely be in your case, the, 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 it might be the case that what's happening is that you're experiencing the cessation of things. When you experience, when your mind begins to focus on cessation, seeing that everything ceases, which is an important insight, during that time it can feel, and it's quite often for the meditator to describe it, uh, as it, it being very difficult to note things. They don't appear very clear in the mind. That's, that's a description, common description of this experience of seeing cessation. Because of course cessation is not very clear. There's no clarity involved. There's just absence, 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 absence as things cease. So it actually is quite often involved, that particular perception involved in positive qualities and, and involved in the development of deeper insight. But, but generally speaking, just don't be concerned with it. If you're aware of that, you can say knowing or something like that. You could say weak, weak, but I would just say something like knowing or feeling if it's a feeling. And just continue on. Don't ever be discouraged by the results. Just cultivate the cause and be patient for the results to come. I often slouch over when I sit cross-legged. Should I just keep straightening my posture and maybe this will get better with time? It's good to continue to straighten your posture. You don't have to be too obsessive about it, but if you notice you're slouching, you can just straighten up. Don't be concerned it's going to get better. It may not. That might just be a part of your practice, and that's not a problem. This isn't samatha meditation. This isn't the type of meditation where you have to be focused and inert. This is a dynamic meditation. It's, we do it while we're walking. You can do it during your daily life eventually to some extent but it's dynamic, and the movements of the body are not a hindrance. So just be mindful of them when they happen. It's not what we normally think of as meditation, as though uh, the, the idea of actually continuously straightening and slouching and straightening and slouching seems ridiculous. That, is the, uh, that, that must be some corruption of the meditation practice. But with mindfulness, that's not the case at all. There's nothing wrong with a meditation where you continuously straighten and slouch and straighten and slouch. As long as it doesn't become like a rocking motion. If that happens, you've got to stop it. That's just the natural slouching and then the intentional straightening. That's all fine. Just note it all. Note the intention and so on. Should we take breaks from mindfulness? Or should we only take breaks from formal meditation? There's no need to ever take a break from mindfulness except when you have other work to do. Like when you have worldly affairs to undertake. Then it may very well be true that you can't be completely devoted to mindfulness. But 
simply for the sake of a break, that's of course not not beneficial. And in fact, the Buddha said specifically, Satinchkuahang bhikkhuve sabatika wadami. Mindfulness, I say, is always beneficial, everywhere beneficial, at every moment. It's the only quality of mind you can say that about. Except maybe wisdom. But as a practice, you can't, wisdom isn't a practice. In terms of practice, mindfulness, sati is the one. I have heard that this is not recommended, but is it okay if I do mantra-based samadhi meditation first and then do mahasi noting after? I feel that I see more clearly when doing this. That's perfectly fine. So what, one thing I didn't mention about samatha meditation uh, is that it it because it's based on concepts, it has less restraints involved. How do, how do I how do I say this? It has less of what I want to say is it's less safe. Mindfulness is a very safe sort of meditation because as long as you understand the technique, it's very hard to go wrong. The thing about concepts is that they're infinite. There is no limit to concepts. And so they can become complex and and multifaceted, multivariate. They can become just infinite. And so you do hear about people who get caught up in them. And because they don't have the power to cultivate right view in the same way that, that Vipassana does, uh, it's quite common for meditators of samatha meditation to get caught up in wrong ideas about or, or extraneous ideas, superfluous ideas about their experiences. Like they'll see something and they'll have the idea that this is say, the Buddha talking to them, or this is Nibbana that they're experiencing. and They'll get all these ideas and narratives, and they'll get caught up in, in routines of developing certain states until it becomes consuming, and in certain cases can even drive the meditator crazy. Now, it's not that common, but without a teacher, it's a, it's a, it's a danger, it's a concern. So the only thing that I would say about Samatha is you have to be dedicated to a regimen and the Visuddhimagga is a good source of this. If you want to practice samatha, try and follow some similar practice to what is explained in the Visuddhimagga so you don't start following delusion, whim, and, and or, or just get lost in some one of the infinite variations of experience. See, with reality, there's no infinite variation. There's just seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. It doesn't get much more than that. And and the more you practice, the simpler it becomes, the less complex it becomes. And so there's less danger of, of uh, mental winding up your mind or that sort of thing. Less danger of getting caught up in something, some sort of delusion. That's all. But apart from that, you consider that samatha meditation is great. Another concern, okay, one more, is that uh, you, you become attached to it and complacent because it's very pleasant. And so it is a concern that people who practice that or dedicate themselves to it neglect vipassana because it's less pleasant. 
it's less comfortable. But that's not a huge concern. It's just something you have to remind yourself and understand that this is not sufficient. That until you go to the switch the practice of vipassana, you'll never be free from suffering. You'll never create this clarity of mind that's necessary to free the mind from suffering, from from delusion, from wrong view, and so on. When I start to note, I immediately feel a lump in my throat area. Is this normal? Am I doing something wrong? So mindfulness meditation is not concerned with what is normal. In fact, a good sign that you're doing things properly is when things feel abnormal, chaotic, when your mind starts to appreciate the uncertainty of life, that you really don't know what's going to happen. And this this is an important understanding that allows, that, that, that uh, encourages, promotes uh, flexibility, adaptability. It, it encourages the mind to let go rather than to cling because clinging is only going to lead to stress when things change in unpredictable ways. There really is no experience, no result of the practice that could be wrong. All that's going to be wrong is your practice, what you do. Right. And and it, it really has no bears no relation to what happens as a result, not directly. Because there are so many reasons why we experience what we experience. Food can be a reason, physical health can be a reason, right? The brain is very much dependent on our physical health. So what we experience in in all parts of the body is going to be produced through our wide variety of causes. We should never be concerned or, or interpretive uh, of, our, of our experiences. We should only try to understand and cultivate positive qualities of experience, how we experience the things that we experience, how we interact with them. And so we should find our reassurance not in the results of the practice but in the quality and very very much this is very important to stress our focus has to always be on the actual quality and, and and being reassured not by the results but by the by the the quality of the mind the clarity of the mind don't don't overlook the power of the mindful state when you say to yourself, for example, pain, pain. Be, try, try to appreciate what that actually means and what that actually involves, the purity and the clarity and the simplicity and how, how, how powerful that is. And just try and stick with that no matter what happens because it's applicable to anything you experience. There's no object of experience, certainly not a lump in your throat, that's going to interfere with that. And, and this is a this is a part of, of how powerful it is, that it is universal. It, it is universally, universally applicable. No matter what you experience, you can be mindful of it. You can appreciate it and understand it clearly as it is. Let's 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 sort of make a side note that you probably are doing something wrong, but what you're doing wrong is worrying about it. You see, 
So, so the wrong is always going to be in how you interpret the experience. And because you're asking this question, you're probably worried about it. You're probably concerned or unsure at the very least about it, maybe even liking or disliking it. It probably would be a disliking if it were anything. But if any of those things come up, then that's what's wrong, you see. That's where the wrongness comes from, just to sort of understand what I'm trying to say. It relates to how you interpret the experience. So the best state of mind would be if that lump in the throat were taken as any other experience and you didn't have any doubt or concern or worry about it whatsoever. It was just a feeling and you would say feeling, feeling. And that's how you would experience it. That would be clarity of mind. How can I manage being compassionate toward attractive people without falling into attachment? Right, so this is the problem with compassion. You've, you've highlighted the problem with compassion, uh, metta, with friendliness. It's actually, I mean, these are not core practices of, of Buddhism. They are practices in Buddhism, but they're not core. And why they're not core is because they're classified as samatha. Because the object is beings, beings are conceptual. A being is something you give rise to in your mind. You have experiences of seeing them, hearing them, them speak, thinking about them, creating a personality, an idea of who they are in your mind that may or may not be accurate, quite often is not perfectly accurate, but, but nonetheless is static. Why we suffer when people change is because we have a static idea of who they are, and who they are is not a who, it's, it's, it's a whole mishmash of things that is so constantly changing. And so when it's out of sync with our static perception, that's where concepts fail. They don't have any relation directly to the, to the reality of the situation. And uh, because they are conceptual, they aren't able to give us this understanding of, of the nature of things and, and a deeper appreciation of the impersonal nature of things, meaning the, the ephemeral the instable, the insubstantial nature of reality as being just experiences that arise and cease. Um, and, and because they are based on concepts, they still have this potential to very much give rise to corruption, and you have to protect your mind when you're practicing them. And so, as practices, it's not proper to practice them in relation to people you might be attracted to. If you're heterosexual, you should not practice them. Usually, in, mo in, in most cases, if you're really intent on developing them towards people of the opposite sex. If you're homosexual, obviously the opposite is true. Uh, if you're bisexual, if you're just attracted to anyone, well, just find people that you aren't normally attracted to. Well, that's the idea. Uh, and this is because these meditations are not meant to be used to cultivate this universal um, universal independence of freedom, of, of not clinging to anything. They're used to develop peace and stability and focus, calm states of mind. So... Don't be too concerned with compassion, with kindness. They are good qualities of mind, but they are always going to be 
subject to these problems until you develop the more deeper goodness or, or purity of mind that comes from vipassana meditation. These are not vipassana meditation, so you're never going to be free from this potential for corruption. How do I let go of lust through meditation? I mean, it's lust is the most difficult. Anger is, is appreciably easier to deal with, to recognize um, than, than, than lust. Lust, well, and on a deeper level, just craving in general, because it doesn't have to be lust. I suppose lust is on the easier side. <laughs> easier is very relative here. You'll appreciate that if you continue to practice, that lust is actually easier than some of the deeper, more subtle cravings. Or, or if not easier, it's it's more coarse, so it's the first to go. Um, but it's still a, a, a huge challenge. The way we do away with it, well, there's two ways, and one is the way through samatha meditation, and this is by um, avoiding it. And the way of avoiding it is by perceiving what you see as beautiful as loathsome. So you might contemplate a dead body. If you're attracted to men, you might contemplate a dead man, a bloated male corpse. If you're attracted to women, you might uh, imagine a bloated female corpse. And this helps you change your perception. And so because your perception is is of something unattractive, um, it it can free you from that that uh, the triggering you know it it it, it pre prevents the mind from triggering that lust. Uh, it, but on a deeper level, through our practice of, of mindfulness, you're going deeper than that, and you're trying to understand the lust. You're trying to break apart the process to overcome not the lust itself, actually, but the delusion. The delusion that that thing is somehow desirable. And because that's what it is, lust cannot exist without delusion, without ignorance. Lust cannot exist with clarity of mind. And so this is why it's, this is a good example of why this is a deeper solution. It's not about redirecting or changing the mind state. It's about perceiving it more clearly. It's about just clarifying the perception of the mind, seeing the object more clearly, seeing our reactions more clearly, understanding things more clearly. Because there is nothing real and true about the desirability of things. This is a very profound truth abstruse, hard to understand, hard to see. Maybe not hard to understand, hard to see. Not because it's complex, but because it requires clarity that we don't naturally possess. And you have to cultivate this clarity. But once you have it, it seems quite obvious, and it's as though that desirability never existed in the first place. There is nothing desirable about anything. In our meditation practice, you told us if we still have desire, anger, and delusions, we should keep on practicing. 
How do we tell if we still have delusions? If you don't know whether you still have delusion or not, you still have delusion. You still have ignorance, let's put it that way. But delusion comes with ignorance. A person who has no delusions is aware they have no delusions. But that being said, I mean, it's a good question because you can't. Delusion, when it arises in the mind, is arises in an absence of, of clarity, right? An absence of wisdom. So you can't actually directly know it. How you know it is because you react to things, because you still get angry and greedy, because you still identify and cling, and because you have arrogance and conceit and so on. So you know from all of that. You're able to see the, the consequences of it. You're able to appreciate the thought processes that are corrupt based on that delusion. In fact, you don't directly, my, my teacher pointed this out to us, that you don't directly attack, attack it. Like if you look at the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha says, Abhijja, what does he say? Abhijja domanasang. He talks about, Vineya loke abhijja domanasang, giving up greed and anger in regards to the world. It doesn't mention delusion, because when you're mindful, delusion's already gone. As soon as you're mindful, there's no delusion, and so the, the how do you overcome delusion? How do you overcome it? You overcome it through, through directly through mindfulness. The cultivation of mindfulness is the supplanting of delusion. It's kind of it's described that way, whereas other types of samatha meditation are about supplanting with supplanting greed and anger with some kind of op opposite. When you're angry, you cultivate kindness. When you're lustful, you cultivate the un the unpleasant, un un unbeautiful, the ugly perceptions of things. Uh, but mindfulness supplants delusion instead of just supplanting greed or anger. It gets more to the root. And the clarity of mind supplants the delusion with clarity, with wisdom. You may find this has already been answered, Bhante. How can we judge whether or not we are seeing clearly? I think see, so. Seeing clearly is not the practice. Again, it's the result. What you have, how you don't judge it quite like that. Judge it as though am I cultivating clarity, not am I seeing clearly. Am I cultivating it? And if you consider the practice of mindfulness, someone who is practicing mindfulness, for them the answer is a resounding yes that they are cultivating clarity of vision. Why? Because mindfulness is a objective, simple, equating things with what they really are. There's, it, there's something very powerful about this. When you talk about what you can know, we had an, a debate about this recently in our study group. Someone was saying, you can't know anything. And I said, you're wrong. That, that's going too far. Don't, don't go that far. Because there are certain things that you can know, very few things, but you can know seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. You know that. 
There's no one who can tell you you're not hearing something. You're not. You're not hearing. They can tell you that it's an a, an hallucination. If you see something, like you see a person, someone who has an imaginary friend, maybe if you see a mirage, maybe it's just a hallucination. They're still seeing. And so when you say to, so so seeing is seeing, and when you say to yourself seeing, you're cultivating this clarity of reality this clarity of things as they are you're you're in tune with reality and your mind is present in reality and 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 that is the practice and the only practice that cult that leads to clarity of mind so you don't have to be concerned as to whether you're going, whether you're developing clarity of mind, or whether you are seeing clearly, or is it working? This is the the question. Is it working? You don't have to be concerned with that. Consider in your mind whether what you're doing is the practice that leads to clarity, and you'll find reassurance there when you realize that this is what leads to clarity of mind. And you'll you you will be able to, of course, of course, you'll be able to see the results. The problem with seeing the results is that they're inconsistent because there are so many other habits. You see, you say, you say, to, you say, oh, I've started practicing meditation, but there's still all this. I still don't see clearly half the time. Of course, you probably don't see clearly 90% of the time because 90% of the time you're not mindful and 90% of your experiences are not based on this practice, but they're based on past habits before you started meditating. We've got a whole lifetime, and we've got lifetimes of habits to contend with. So, so really, really, especially in the beginning, don't be too concerned with results. Don't be very concerned with results at all. Be concerned with quality of mind, and be reassured that mindfulness is the one thing, or mindfulness is a pure, a wholesome, a safe practice. You should be able to reassure, your, reassure yourself without having to believe me, without having to uh, analyze or study or, or doubt or worry. Because it's so simple. We reassured that there's nothing hidden behind this. This is simply trying to see, seeing as seeing, without any of the baggage that is normally associated with that. That's it. And if you can appreciate that, it should be... A, no big step to appreciate how it most definitely leads to clarity and and uh, purity uh, of consciousness. After meditating regularly for a few days, I began feeling empty and depressed due to the lack of the regular thought stream in my head? Is this simply a sign of withdrawal from that habit? Yes, that's a pro that's quite a, that's a good, a good uh, conjecture. It may not be exactly that. It's, it's better not to make these sort of conjectures because it, it could be one of any number of things. And, and I'm sorry, more to the point, because that's not really important. You, what you have to come to is an objectivity where you don't 
worry about what's causing it. Because you see what's happening here is you're wondering whether this is a sign that there's something wrong with what you're doing, right? This is a common thing for new meditators to be concerned whether what they're doing is actually any good, doubting about the practice. Does this guy who's teaching me know what he's talking about and so on? Which is why I encourage you to try to appreciate the simplicity and the purity of the practice, that there is nothing possible that could go wrong with this practice in particular, unlike any number of other meditations based on concepts. This one is safe as long as you stick to it. There is nothing possible. And you don't have to believe me because simple analysis of it should provide you with that sort of conclusion. And that's it's this is all it is. It's just seeing things without baggage, basically. Now, as a result of doing that, yes, withdrawal can come about, but any number of things can come about, bad, more generally than just withdrawal, bad past habits. Because feeling empty and depressed, let's be clear about this, these by their very nature, no matter what the cause, no matter what the cause, they are the problem, not the cause. You see, this is a change that has to come about in your mind, not to see them as a sign that something is wrong. They are what's wrong when you are bored of something, when something makes you angry, um, when you're, you're worried, when you doubt about something. Doubt has nothing to do with the thing that you're doing. Doubt is a, a, a hindrance. And when you give up the doubt, all you have left is seeing clearly, and your mind naturally inclines towards uh, doing the right thing. In fact, it is through doubt that we get off on the wrong path because it leads us to, it leads to confusion and it causes the mind to choose not based on wisdom. How should both samatha and vipassana be cultivated in a particular meditation session? Well, I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate, but I'd consider that to be a good way. If you haven't, go ahead and read it. It's very simple. You should see that there's nothing to doubt about it. And if you're really interested, you could sign up for an at-home meditation course also on our website. It's all free. We've come to the end, Bhante. Great. Oh, yes, we're over time. Okay. Thank you all. Wow, good group. Thank you for all of your help, Chris and Jim and Ulu. Thank you for everyone for coming out. Thank Sadhu. You. Sadhu. May we all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering and the clarity of mind that leads to these things. <laughs>